الحمد لله الحمد لله خالق الأرض والسماء والصلاة والسلام على حبيبه ونبيه محمد المصطفى صلى الله وعلى آله هم كسفينة نوح مركبها نجا وعلى أصحابه هم كالنجوم من اقتدى بهم اهتدى أما بعد فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم قل هو الله أحد صدق الله العظيم وصدق رسوله النبي الأمين المتين المعين المغيث الكريم ونحن على ذلك لمن الشاهدين والشاكرين والحمد لله رب العالمين مولاي صل وسلم دائما أبدا على حبيبك خير الخلق كلهم محمد سيد الكونين والثقلين والفريقين من عرب ومن عجم ثم الرضا عن أبي بكر وعن عمر وعن علي وعن عثمان ذي الكرم والآل والصحب ثم التابعين لهم أهل التقى والنقى والحلم والكرم يا رب بالمصطفى بلغ مقاصدنا يا رب بالمصطفى بلغ مقاصدنا يا رب بالمصطفى بلغ مقاصدنا واغفر لنا ما مضى يا واسع الكرم مولاي صل وسلم دائما أبدا على حبيبك خير الخلق كلهم الحمد لله just before we start if I can request everybody to stand up stretch your legs and move a little bit closer please inshallah the people at the back if you can move a little bit closer please you, you, the guys at the front you can stay here the people at the back uh, you can come uh, down inshallah Alhamdulillah, first and foremost, I'd like to congratulate Hafiz Uwaisa for organizing this beautiful event. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept this from him and the masjid for hosting us and allowing us to be here. Without, we've already had um, a bit of a delay due to a janazah as you're aware. So inshallah, we are short on time. So we'll get straight into it. The topic, as you all know, you're already here. You must have seen the poster. The topic is sectarianism and it's a podcast style talk show. So it's not really a speech, something different. Something me and Hafiz Muhammad As'ad have been doing uh, for the past few months on different various topics. But Alhamdulillah, this one, we have a great panel of scholars. We'll just slight introduction for them, inshallah. We have obviously on my left, uh, Shaykh Asrar Rashid. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless him Ameen. and preserve him for the Ahlul Sunnati wal Jama'ah. He's not in need of any introduction, but Alhamdulillah, he has studied in the UK with various teachers as well as studying abroad, Alhamdulillah, and completed uh, not only the Darsan Islami syllabus, but many other syllabuses as well. So Alhamdulillah, a very, very learned scholar whose current aim is to propagate the creed of the Ahlul Sunnati wal Jama'ah, and he's working especially in debunking atheism and their theories, alhamdulillah. So that's Shaykh Asrar. Next to him, we have uh, Mawlana Muhammad Nizam Ashraf, who is my cousin, who is the son of Mufti Muhammad Ayyub Ashrafi. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless him and preserve him. A great scholar in his own right. He started his journey in Bolton with his father. We are classmates in that sense. And then he moved on to Jami Al-Karam, where he studied for a few years. Thereafter, went to India. 
and studied at the renowned Darul Uloom Jamda Shahi, a very famous uh, Darul Uloom in India. Those of you that are from India are familiar. Alhamdulillah, he studied there. Now he returned back to the UK and is currently the Imam and Khatib at Jami Masjid Ghawthiyah in Bolton. On my right, we have Ustad Sheikh Muhammad Asad Ali, again, who is in, not in need of an introduction. Uh, a lot of you that are here know him very well from his work on Instagram and his efforts in propagating the deen, alhamdulillah. He began his formal studies at, as a hafiz, studying hifz in Sheffield, thereafter moving on to Jami Al-Karam where he completed the entire six-year syllabus. Thereafter, he traveled to the blessed lands of Madinatul Munawwara to pursue his study in Qiraat. So, mashallah, he has ijaza uh, in Qiraat of Hifz, uh, Hafs, sorry, from multiple uh, Qurra. So, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless him and preserve him as well. These scholars, you are very familiar of them. You know who they are, inshallah. Uh, so, we'll get straight into it. The topic, sectarianism, something that is strife, something that people are very confused about something that people really need to know. Uh, I'm the one that decided to do this talk. I rang Hafiz Uwais and asked him that we need this, uh, this talk. We need this topic. It's really important. People are really confused. And Alhamdulillah, uh, those of you that know, I'm on Instagram myself and I receive these questions and queries all the time. People ask, who is this? Who is that? Why are we correct? Why can I not just call myself a Muslim? And why all these debates online, I'm seeing Sunnis fighting with each other, this, that, the other. What's the crack? What's going on? Who's right? Who's wrong? So Alhamdulillah, this is the event where we plan on making everything clear as day. Inshallah. That's the plan. Every single thing will be discussed. Every single thing will be made clear for you. Sometimes the talk may be too technical for you, but that's understandable because it is a difficult topic. If you don't understand, that means... Uh, the talk is technical, inshallah, that, uh, that's an opportunity for you to go and study and increase your knowledge of these things, inshallah, inshallah. right? It is a panel discussion, meaning we will be talking between ourselves. You will be listening just like the way you do a podcast. You're not part of the conversation until we may bring you into the conversation. But at the end, there will be a Q&A session where anything during the talk that you may not have understood, right? Or any other question that you have had in your mind from before, you can either write them down on paper, the papers are dotted at the back inshallah. Uh, alternatively, you can stand up or raise your hand at the end and inshallah ask any of the shuyukh that are present here. Do not be shy. That's one thing I will mention. Do not be shy in asking your question. Questions, these are matters related to the deen. Okay? And learning the deen is obligatory upon every single individual. Okay? It's not a communal obligation. It's not just because the imam knows that's sufficient. Every person needs to know individually. So ask the questions, whatever doubts, whatever shubuhat you may have in your mind, ask them questions, inshallah, the scholars are here to clarify. The talk will be separated into three segments, inshallah, and you will see these segments come on. So we'll go straight into it. The first thing, Shaykh Asrar, I'd like to ask you is, what makes a person a Muslim? That's the first thing we need to know. Okay, the Ahlul Sunnah and the sects come after. What makes a person a Muslim? Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Uh, going into the subject uh, with regard to your question, Iqrarun bil-lisani wa tasdiqun bil-qalb. Iqrar bin nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Because if you notice, 
Some people may discuss love of God, but they would avoid discussing love of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. This is because love of God is common amongst all religions. So a person can state that he loves God Almighty, but without the iqrar of the Nabi sallallahu alaihi wasallam, he remains a kafir. So la ilaha illallah. The requirement of La ilaha illallah is Sayyiduna Muhammadur Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Because by having iqrar and tasdiq bil qalb of Sayyiduna Muhammadur Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that entails iman in the Quran and iman in the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, which entails beliefs. Of din, which are those things which are known by necessity in religion. Al Imam Ibn Hajar Al Haytami Al Makki Rahimallah Ta'ala in his Al Fatawa Al Hadithiya he mentions the maratib, the levels of what? Of din, those things which are known in religion by necessity. There are maratib, inshallah, we will enter into the discussion with regard to the maratib of din. Daruriyatuddin are those things which are known in religion by necessity, which are essential for every Muslim to believe in. Walaw mujmalan. Walaw mujmalan, meaning without tafsil, uh, even by way of summary, if a person knows those essentials. So in all the kutab, we memorize what? The iman mufassal and iman mujmal. This Iman Mufassal and Iman Mujmal that we memorized, Amantu Billahi wa Malaikatihi wa Kutubihi wa Rusulihi wal Yawmi Al-Akhiri wal Qadri Khayrihi wa Sharrihi min Allahi Ta'ala wal Ba'thi Ba'd Al-Mawt contains some of the Daruriyat al-Din, the essentials of the religion, like Hashrul Ajsad, the resurrection of the bodies, is from the Daruriyat al-Din. Wahdaniyatullahi subhanahu wa ta'ala is from the Daruriyatuddin. Ma yastawi fihi al-amatu wal-khasatu. In which the al-ama, the general people and the specific people, meaning the ulama, are equal in that regard. They are equal in that regard that they know with regard to Wahdaniyatullah, oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They know about Yawmul Qiyamah, Day of Judgment. Fatmun Nabuwah. Finality of prophethood. These things are known as daruriyatuddin. The naqid, which is the uh, contradistinction of the opposite, or the did, the opposite is did, and the naqid, which is the total uh, contradiction, doing iqrar of that, meaning affirming the opposite, is kufr, disbelief. So wahdaniyatullah, oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but doing iqrar of the opposite, which is what? Al-ishraqu billah is what is al-khuruj anil millah. It takes someone out of the fold of Islam. So al-iqraru bin Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam huwa aynul iman. Affirming the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is the essence of al-iman. And this is why you will notice those who promulgate perennial philosophy today, they will talk about children of God, love of God, but they will undermine love of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam because a person who does iqrar of God, he will not do iqrar of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. 
So, in summary, that is the answer to your question. The Sheikh mentioned uh, with regards to Dhuruyat al-Din, I think it's important to mention the definition of Dhuruyat al-Din. So what, what are the things which are proven in the religion by necessity? Uh, so the ulama have defined this as being uh, something of those articles of faith which have been established uh, by way of verses of the Qur'an or a hadith mutawatira, uh, those mass narrated narrations or ijma' qat'i. And all of these three evidences are qat'i evidences meaning qat'i thubut and qat'i dayala. And those articles of faith in which, as mentioned by the Shaykh, that both the awam and the khawas know of them to be part of the religion. So this would be the, uh, the definition of al-dhururiyatuddin. So in essence, you have, um, there's two terms here that we want to distinguish and we want to uh, sort of figure out whether you consider them as synonymous or not. You have ma'lumuddin bil-darura and then you have dhururiyatuddin. Okay, both are synonymous. Um, however, with dhururiyatuddin, these refer to those things which are established by things which are qat'i, right? Definitive evidences which cannot be rejected. And if they are rejected, then that, that takes you outside of the folds. Ma'lumuddin bidurura are those things which are mushtarak between the awam and the khawas, that every single person will know generally, okay, that this is a part of the deen. As uh, Sheikh was mentioning, there's certain things which we know definitively, like, for example, um, the, the oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the finality of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And that's why we have to make a complete, uh, a, distinct, uh, a distinction between those people who accept the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, right, as the final Messenger. Anybody who does not accept the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam as the seal, as the seal of prophethood, okay, is outside the folds of Islam. And then to accept or understand that Islam is the final religion and it is the only way that leads to salvation. In Nadina Indallahil Islam, that is also a part of Ad-Dururiyat uh, of the Deen. So these things that you've mentioned, Shaykh, are the necessities of the religion. Uh, I'm more of a moderator also, inshallah, you'll see me asking the questions. Um, these things that you've mentioned, they are known uh, in the religion by necessity. Who makes these necessities? Who's made these necessities? And where do we take these necessities from? So the source of the necessities is the revelation, Al-Wahyu min indillah, the revelation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which then is transmitted to us from mass transmission, and from the what is mentioned, what was mentioned, qat'iyat, what is mentioned, what is meant by that is qat'iyudalala, which is decisive in its import, anything which is decisive in its import. So in the Quran, all the Quran is qat'iyudthabut. It has been established by decisive, meaning the, the transmission of the Quran is decisive. La shakka fihi wa la raib. But the dalalat, the signification of some of the verses can sometimes be dhanni. Some of the verses could be dhanni in their signification, meaning, meaning the implied meaning could be near certainty. But qati'ud dalala is absolute certainty in the signification as to what the verse signifies. This is reached the Muslim masses through mass transmission.
But anyone who adopts the naqid, the opposite to this, will be murtakib lil kufr, meaning he has adopted disbelief, which is the total opposite. So delineating, delineating daruriyatul deen, or that which is al-ma'loom fi deen bi Delineating that is the task of the ulama who have done so, but even without their delineation, the lay person, al-amatu, they will know that this is known in our religion by necessity, even though they may not use that technical jargon, like knowing that there are five daily prayers, knowing that there is adhan, knowing certain tenets of faith, like al-malaika, believing in angels, this is known by every common person. Another distinction which is made is that which is known by Al-Amma wal khasa Amongst Al-Amma, they may not know something which is Qat'i. Mm-hmm. Like for instance, Bintul Ibni, uh, the Bintul Ibn, the granddaughter inherits one-sixth with the presence of the daughter. This is something decisively established in our religion. But the lay people will not be able to delineate that. So therefore, at takfir in those type of masail, like what was mentioned with the qira'at, the qira'at are known amongst the experts of qira'at. But if there is a layman who has never heard qira'atul warsh or any of the riwayat, and he hears this for the first time, because of his jahal, of a very technical type of daruri uh, knowledge. Uh, another point to uh, be mentioned here, some of the ulama have mentioned al-darura, here is a synonym of what? Badihi. Mm-hmm. Al-darura is badihi, meaning al-badihi in, tu- al-badihi in logic is what? Intuitive. But for the layman, that tenet of faith is intuitively known. Like I say to you, the, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa is the finality of prophets. بغير ta'wil without interpretation, because we will go on to ta'wil also. Yeah. Because the aqsamu ta'wil, because some person may come and do ta'wil, say, oh, this relates only to superiority to all prophets. Yeah, now this ta'wil is what we refer to as ta'wil ba'id. Uh, and Ta'wil itself is divided into three types, as is mentioned in Fawatiyah Rahmut. He mentions that there is Ta'wil Qareeb, there is Ta'wil Ba'id, and there is that which is totally uh, what we will call uh, deforming the entire meaning. Batil. So the three yeah. types of Ta'wil Qareeb, Ba'id, and totally, even the Ba'id is Batil. Mm-hmm. Ba'id is also Batil. So when we go into the Usul Takfir, the principles of takfir, this is something that needs to be uh, demarcated. The distinction between valid ta'wil and invalid ta'wil. So in response to your question, who demarcates the daruriyatul deen? In a formal fashion, it's done by the ulama. Like if you check the works like Sharh al-Maqasid, Sharh al-Mawaqif, you check al-Musayara and al-Musamara. These works of Ilm al-Kalam, they will delineate the daruriyatul deen in a formal fashion. But the, the daruriyatul deen are even known to a point of sealant by al-Amma, the general people. But in detail, 
ijmalan by al-'amma but in tafseel some of them tafseelan by the ulama like i gave the example of bintul ibn tarif as-sudas that the, she inherits one sixth ma'al bint this is a mas'ala qat'iyah but it will only be known amongst the experts of that particular science of inheritance laws so the 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 ayah of the quran huwa alladhi anzala alayka alkitab minhu ayatun muhkamatun hunna ummul kitab wa ukharu mutashabihat so uh, there are certain verses in the quran which are qati'u thubut yani the evidence of them are absolutely the, the entire quran, the quran is, yeah uh, sorry yes yeah, so qati'u thubut sorry the dalala right so everything is qati'u thubut right but in terms of the dalala because there are ayat which are mutashabihat okay then obviously they need to be known through uh the various other uh ways of the tradition which come through uh forms which are mujma' alayh which make that uh the daruriyat of the deen so here <coughs> with regard to mujma' alayh there are people like ash-shukani mm-hmm. uh, who deny ijma' or the possibility of ijma' and this is one of the ibtida' fi din one of the religions of uh, the innovations in religion that has come from some of the people who deny ijma' as a source of law and some of them claim that ijma' is impossible. They claim ijma' is impossible. But in reality, the ta'rif, correct ta'rif for ijma' would be the consensus of the mujtahid, a'imma mujtahidun in every asr on a given mas'ala. Now, al-a'immatul mujtahidun are very limited in number. So even within as-salafus salihun within the generation of al-imam abu hanifa rahimahullah there were only a few mujtahidun yep. even in the generation of ishaq bin rahway rahimahullah was born in 160 passed away in 233 he's what ishaq bin rahway is one of the uh, mujtahidin mentioned by al-imam at-tirmidhi throughout al-jami' mm-hmm. when, when he mentions him with al-imam ahmad bin hanbal rahimahullah ta'ala a very few mujtahidun within a salafus salihun so therefore ijma' is not difficult to determine but there is a distinction between that ijma' the ijma' of the mujtahidin and ijma' in al-ma'lum fi din bi darura what's the distinction yastawi fihi al-'amatu wal khasatu that the al-'amah and al-khasa are equal in that regard so Ishaq bin Rahway rahimahullah and all the mujtahidin imams prior to him like Sufyan bin uh, Sufyan bin Uyaynah Sufyan Thawri rahimahullah and all these great a'immatuddin uh, may have ijma' on an obscure mas'ala which is what we refer to as ijma' of ahli sunnah wal jama'ah mm-hmm. which is, and i'tibar is only done with ahli sunnah within ijma' yeah. but in ma'lum fi ad-din bi ad-darurah it's not darura of the madhhab mm-hmm. Meaning, daruratul jama'a or daruratul firqa mm-hmm. is darur, daruratul ummah. Meaning, mm-hmm. the entire ummah agrees on that tenet, like khatmun nabuwa. So, it, it would not carry in or entail the same type of ijma' which when we say this mas'ala is mujma'ali. So, for example, the entire ummah agrees on khatmun nabuwa. What if somebody denies it? Does that break the ijma'? So, now we enter into the domain of anyone who f- falls into naqid of daruriyatuddin 
the daruriyat al-deen were established from the time of the messenger of allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam so after that if there is someone in opposition to that like musaylama al-kadhab al-mu'asir bin nabi sallallahu alaihi wasallam al-musaylama was a contemporary of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam who became what al-mutanabbi who who claimed prophethood did he violate ijma' or did he did he abrogate ijma' the answer is no because abrogation of this type of ijma' al-ma'lum fi din bi darurah there is no one who can abrogate this agreement of the ummah of the messenger of allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam meaning what we refer to as at-talaqi bil qubul at-talaqi bil qubul meaning from the common man and to the ulama they have agreed upon this tenet so this is now known as irtikab al-kufr when someone does irtikab al-kufr we enter into the domain of usul al-takfir in usul al-takfir in the principles of takfir someone who carries out an action or statement which entails takfir how do we determine his kufr there are 28 qisman min al-kufr so from 720 scenarios 719 are referred to as uh, what is referred to as luzum al-kufr and one scenario is referred to as iltizam al-kufr from that one iltizam al-kufr there are 28 surah 28 possibilities this is now the task of the al-mufti now i use the word al-mufti not in the sense that it's used here in halifax or bolton or birmingham mm-hmm. no al-mufti is a mujtahid the the al-muftun that we have uh, throughout britain or other countries they are al-naqilun yeah. but urfan they refer to them as al-mufti al-mufti is someone who has the ability malaka bil ijtihad he determines the kufr the disbelief of that individual that scenario scenario 720 is what is referred to as man shakka fi kufri wa adhabihi faqad kafar the meaning would be wa man shakka fi kufri man ankara daruriyan min ad-din faqad kafar this is the meaning yeah. meaning whoever rejects something which is known in religion by necessity and then someone doubts his disbelief he also commits disbelief so if there is a qaul an ascription of disbelief to someone you would have to check al kalam the speech itself you would have to evaluate the speech mm. or the action because the person could do a sajda to a, an idol yeah. mm. or the person could throw a quran an action is also kufr then you would have to check at takallum then you would have to check mutakallim mm-hmm. now what is a takallum a takallum is ascription of that disbelief to that person mm. did that person actually say this so the verification is not only done on the statement the verification is done on the ascription of that statement to the person and then the, the mutakallim did the mutakallim die on this and then after this the ta'wil is looked at the the mufti looks at the ta'wil what is ta'wil as i mentioned ta'wil ba'id ta'wil qareeb but with the ta'wil is ta'wil bila dalil or an dalil or khilaf dalil these are three scenarios yeah. so all of them each scenario has three 
possibilities. possibilities. So then you times three by three is nine. And then three by three is what? Nine. And then three by three is nine. Twenty-seven scenarios. Then those 20, 27 scenarios are analyzed. Then there are 27 other scenarios. They time that 27 by 27 equals 720. So 720 possibilities and all of these things are analyzed. Sheikh, um, you mentioned 720 possibilities. Mufti Muti'ur Rahman, Ridhubi Rahimah, Hafidahullah, he mentions 792. Yeah, 719. So within those 719, one, Mufti Muti'ur Rahman does mention 719. Within those 791 is what is referred to as Al-Kufrul Kalami. Yeah, and not Al-Kufrul Fiqhi. What's the difference between Al-Kufrul Kalami and Al-Kufrul Fiqhi? So again, with regard to a ta'wil, going back back to ta'wil, in a ta'wil, is ta'wil done bila dalil? Is ta'wil done bila dalil? The fuqaha, they say you cannot do ta'wil bila dalil. They say there must be a dalil for ta'wil, for interpretation. The mutakallimin, they say if there is scope for ta'wil, not ta'wil ba'id or mushawwash or mushawwah, meaning deformed. Ta'wil which is qareeb. So when in the Hashi of Ibn Abdin, rahimullah, he mentions if there is ihtimal of 99 interpretations, then you give the if there is no possibility of 99 interpretations, you go with the one. Which one does he mean? Qareeb. So uh, that qareeb ta'wil is the ta'wil of the mutakallimin that bila dalil they give a ta'wil. So like for instance, a man is arguing with his wife. Sometimes when I give these type of amthila, people take them out of context, so I'm being very specific. <laughs> a man is arguing with his wife. In the process of arguing with his wife, he, say, he's, he gives a talaq. There are three witnesses to this scenario. One witness does not hear the wife demanding a talaq and does not hear the argument. All he hears is the man saying talaq. Another one hears the wife demanding the talaq and the talaq. A third one hears the context of the entire argument and the wife demanding the talaq and the talaq itself. So like this, from this juz'i, you can make a kulli that the scenarios differ from the mutakallimin to the fuqaha. So the mutakallimin give a wider scope for ta'wil and therefore their takfir is the most cautious. And the ulama of, of Bareli, because there are certain people who claim that the Barelis are mukafirin, hmm. are takfiris. This is slander to claim that Al-Imam Ahmad Rida Khan specifically Rahimahullah Ta'ala was a takfiri, you are slandering him. There is a man in California who claims that the Barelwis meaning Al-Imam Ahmad Rida Khan Rahimahullah is a takfiri wal-iyadu billah. When in fact Al-Imam Ahmad Rida Khan Rahimahullah 
took precaution mm. meaning from these 719 scenarios only one is iltizam al kufr meaning yeah. a person has so much scope in the hashi of ibn abdin he mentions 100 interpretations here we have 719 mm-hmm. 719 uh, possibilities yeah. and only one is referred to as iltizam al kufr and this is why in al kawkabat al shihabiyah Al-Imam Ahmed Rida Khan listed 70 Al-Fadhul Kufr mm-hmm. of Ismail Al-Dahlawi and avoided his takfir even though Fadlul Haq Al-Allama Fadlul Haq Al-Khairabadi Rahimallahu Ta'ala he did takfir of Ismail Al-Dahlawi mm-hmm. prior to Al-Imam Ahmed Rida Khan but Al-Imam Ahmed Rida Khan desisted from his takfir why? because of the three scenarios Al-Kalam Al-Takallum and Al-Mutakallim And there was a possibility of Ismail al-Dahlawi having repented. Mm. Mm. So because of that repentance, the takfir was avoided. And this is why today, I say many times, those who say they are ascribed to Imam Ahmad Rida Khan, by Allah, you do not even read his works. You do not even read his works. Mm. Because if you read his works, you will realize he was not mutasarri' fi takfir. Sahih. He did not do takfir of people except those that he took the necessary the necessary steps in order to validate their takfir. Not like someone today who gathers all the statements of a person and then within a year he issues a fatwa of kufr, mm. disbelief. And an individual who lives in his own, own home city can go and visit him. Meaning this is a tasarru' fi takfir. Yes. With regards to the uh, the four individuals that Imam Ahmad Rida Khan rahimahullah ta'ala gave the fatwa al-kufr, after 20 years of writing to them, qat al-kitaba, in fact, in the year in which he gave fatwa of kufr, he gave a final letter to Ashraf Ali Tanwi, and this is mentioned within Daf'ul Fasad an Muradabad, and he invited to come to Muradabad and to sit down face to face so that he can clarify those statements in front of Imam Ahmad Rida Khan rahimahullah ta'ala. What we see here, an observation is that both the detractors of Imam Ahmad Rida Khan and those who are the mutashaddidun, the extremists, both agree upon one point. They agree that Imam Ahmad Rida Khan was mutasarri' in giving kufr fatawa or kufri fatawa, um, which is incorrect, which is incorrect. Imam Ahmad Rida Khan rahimahullah ta'ala did not give fatwa of kufr in Imkan al-Kadhib. He did not give fatwa of kufr with regards to Ismail al-Dihlwi. As mentioned by the Shaykh, many notable scholars gave fatwa of kufr before Imam Ahmad Rida Khan rahimahullah ta'ala. But Imam Ahmad Rida Khan rahimahullah ta'ala because of that ihtimal that Ismail al-Dihlwi had repented and this was just mashhur, not mashhur in the istilahi term. It was just mashhur in the common folk that he had made tawbah. Uh, so based upon this, this small shubha, Imam Ahmad Rida Khan rahimahullah ta'ala following the aqidah of the, the Kalami scholars. If an Arab scholar today, an Arab scholar from 100 years after 1921 when Imam Ahmad Rida Khan rahimahullah passed away, an Arab alim, he is ma'adhur, he has udhar to not enter the subject of takfir of specific individuals. But... I would advise certain people to read Al-Mawtul Ahmar by whom? Al-Imam Mustafa Rida Khan. Mm-hmm. Al-Mawtul Ahmar mentions these iltizam and luzum. 
as well as al being extreme in two ways al mudahana wa ta'ajjub wa ta'assub sorry al mudahana wa ta'assub al ta'assub is what being attached to your sect or your group to the point that you are unjust with the opponent this is not permitted being attached to your group to the point that you become blind ta'assub what is al mudahana al mudahana is you meet hussein nasr and you start kissing his hand and mean hussein nasr is a perennialist he believes in the perennial philosophy the validity of all the world's religions this is now al mudahana pretentiousness people who become lost between the two extremes are between al mudahana wa ta'assub we as sunni muslims should avoid both sahih so even if you meet hussein nasr meeting him is one thing but showing respect and honoring them and but explaining or going through his disbelief and demonstrating the illogical uh, beliefs that he has is is another thing so you you've not fallen into the sin of al mudahana where you are pretentious to hussein nasr similarly at ta'assub is that you despise someone to such a point meaning let's say someone despises the mistakes of another person that it becomes personal hatred personal mm-hmm. hatred rather than guidance so uh, if there is a particular person who has become misguided on certain points because of your ta'assub you insult them you swear at them you go beyond the par- parameters but so attempting to remain in the middle is very important so you should always have a balance between mudahana and ta'assub shouldn't be too pali pali and you should always speak the truth when you need to speak the truth yes uh, a question uh, maulana nizam for you is why do we have to make takfir uh, why do you call someone a kafir how do we know what is in their heart that's a common objection that people will make that why did imam ahmad rida khan or anyone not just specifically singling out imam ahmad rida khan many scholars made takfir where they saw it was their right to do that and where they saw that this would lead to greater fitna if they did not do that when they did that a person for a layman a layman or a lay person they will think how do i know what's in that person's heart why am i calling him a kafir so the ahkam are based upon the zahir based upon the zahir and therefore if a person does inkar of any one of the articles of faith meaning those dhururiyat of din as we mentioned before i'tiqadan qawlan or amalan then the ulama will have a look at that statement or the action and then they will decide based upon that if the person will be anathematized and taken and his takfir will be done basically yani if he is multazim bi kufri if he agrees multazim bi kufri Uh, he stays steadfast on that disbelief additionally uh, with regard to what you mentioned there is also a an attempt by some people to furnish quotes from previous ulama to validate bid'ah so for instance i was reading al mu'taqad al mus al mu'taqad al muntaqad 
أن المستند المعتمد both of the books in there he mentions that the people of Samarkand they had a dispute with regard to whether al-iman is eternal and they are corrected with regard to this now if someone takes obscure positions to validate their own position like in Faisal al-Tafriqa there is a passage from Imam Abu Hamid al-Ghazali rahimahullah where he mentions the salvation of peasants and people who do not have the right concepts of Islam because the khabar has not reached them in accordance with the Ash'ari position mm-hmm. which is وَمَا كُنَّا مُعَذِّبِينَ حَتَّى نَبْعَثَ رَسُولًا We will not punish a person until we dispatch a messenger meaning the, the tawatur reaches them regarding a tenet of faith. So there is now over 12 years ago I refuted individuals and I corrected them on this, that you are misquoting Faisal al-Tafriqa. You are misquoting Faisal al-Tafriqa. Yet, they still quote Faisal al-Tafriqa to individuals. Yeah. To say that Faisal al-Tafriqa, Imam Abu Hamd al-Ghazali, he supports perennial philosophy. Now most of the people listening will not have read Faisal al-Tafriqa. And those who refer back to it will maybe not even understand the particular passage. Or for instance, there is a passage which is quoted also by Imam Ahmad Ridha Khan rahimahullah in Al-Fayyudat. He mentions that a particular mutakallim mentions that we desist from takfir on those who deny ahsharul ajsad, hashrul ajsad, that the bodies shall be resurrected. He corrects him on this. He corrects him on that. But then they ascribe this to some of the mutasawwifah, some of the Sufi claimants. So Imam Ahmad Rida Khan gives the example of Imam Abdul Wahhab al-Sha'rani that in his lifetime, the works of Imam Abdul Wahhab al-Sha'rani were madsus alayh. They were tampered in his lifetime. So even if there is an inscription to a, an Imam that people hold in esteem, three things would have to be determined. Firstly, the speech. What did he write? If it is kufr and there is no ta'wil qareeb, then did he actually write this? That is determined. Or was his book tampered? If the book was tampered, then we desist from takfir. If however the book is positively affirmed to him through mass transmission, then did he die upon this? This is why Al-Imam As-Subki rahimullah desisted from takfir of Ibn Taymiyyah. What was ascribed to him? Fana'un-Nar, the perishing of hellfire. Al-Imam Subki says that the perishing of hellfire is what? Is kufr. If anyone holds his position, it's kufr. But the ascription to Ibn Taymiyyah was not positively affirmed. So he desisted from takfir. So, so you, you, you might detis, uh, not make takfir of the individual, but you still hold that statement as kufr. And this is what many of the Arab ulama hold with regard to the statements of the ulama of the Oband when the statements are presented to them. Yes. Mm. They say the statements are wrong, but we are unsure of whether after over a hundred years, in a time where even so-called Brailwi ulama in the UK, who I have sat with, 
haven't even read the works of Imam Ahmad Rida Khan hmm. or his Khulafa. Yeah. They have not read Ar-Radu ala al-Muhannat. I've sat with them. They haven't read the uh, various works. At-Tahqiqat uh, li uh, dafi talbisat. You'll be surprised. Many of them haven't read these things. And when they haven't read these works, they are unfamiliar of the issues. As long as a person does not acknowledge those statements. And this is what uh, Umar Hamdan al-Mahrusi rahimallah when he wrote his taqreed to Husam al-Haramain, if people bother reading those taqareed, Umar Hamdan was Shaykh al-Kul li ahli Makkah. Shaykh al-Kul. He was Shaykh al-Kul and he wrote in thabata anhum, words to that effect. If this is established from them, then they are kafir. But he declared the statements kufr. And this is our message to even the... There are two scenarios. Scenario number one, you enter an area where people recognize themselves as Diobandi, but they do not hold those statements as Islam. They are unfamiliar of those statements. Is it wise now to present those statements if they are fanatical blind followers of those people that they will blindly follow those statements or does a person desist from ever presenting those statements? Which position do you take? Do you present the statements to them knowing that they will adopt those statements or do you leave them believing those statements are untrue? Secondly, those who are ulama from the scholars of Dioband, they should not defend those statements. Mm -hmm. It was a better position prior to the work Iman, Kufr and Takfir of a Sheikh Nuha Minkala prior to 2007, many of you were younger in 2007, where the Diobandis would say these statements are not from our ulama, we do not believe in them. Yeah. Many Diobandis would say this. After 2007, when the article Iman Kufr and Takfir was written, he positively affirmed the statements and defended the statements, then people began to defend those statements. Now. To demonstrate that we are not unjust. Umar Ichrawi, who is respected by many so-called, I have to qualify this, so-called Brilwis, mm -hmm. as, a, a, as a great scholar of Islam, has many statements in his books yeah. that are problematic. Mm. Those statements, that kalam is found in his books. Do we... Do we defend that kalam? The answer is no. We will say this is not defendable. We will refute the statement. They say, why do you desist from takfir? Because we do not know the details, meaning when it was presented to me, I was unfamiliar of the individual in detail, in tafsil. I have his books. But when I read the passages, like how he words it, whether Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is in every place, bidati wa sifati. Whether he uses that terminology, I do not know. But this belief is kufr. Disbelief. We do not defend it. That is the distinction between ta'asub. Ta'asub. Ta'asub is now that if a kufr statement is found in the books of an alim that we hold in veneration, we defend the kufr. No. The position should be what? Refute the statement. If you want to say this, the alim didn't say it, then say that. 
but do not defend the disbelief that is ascribed to him. Like Fana'un Nar, perishing of hellfire, in Hadi al-Arwah of Ibn Qayyim, you find a presentation of Fana'un Nar. Even though he presents the proofs, he doesn't positively ascribe to the position. But he gives the proofs for that position. Some of the Salafis, they say, Al-Bara'atu, Al-Bara'a of whom? Of Abu Abbas Ahmad bin Taymiyyah and Ibn Qayyim Al-Jawziyah from this position. They say Al-Bara'a from this position. So they acknowledge the position is kufr. But they say they did not adopt this position. It's They are Al-Muftara alayhima. It's an iftira. It's an accusation that was placed upon them. But they do not adopt the position. And this is not having ta'asub. So there are some people, they find a kufr statement in the books of the ulama that they venerate, and they may give ta'wil ba'id for the text. If ta'wil qareeb is not valid, then you what you should do is say it's madsus alayhim. Like some people now, they ascribe many things to al-Sheikh al-Akbar, al-Sheikh Muhyiddin ibn Arabi rahimullah. But the scholars, they, the ulama like Jalaluddin al-Suyuti, rahimahullah, and many other ulama, al-Imam Abdul Wahab al-Sha'arani, like in al-Kibrit, they mention these statements of what? Al-Madsus. He even gives examples of how statements were ascribed to him, to al-Imam Abdul Wahab al-Sha'arani, rahimahullah. So they do not acknowledge the ascription of the statement to al-Sheikh al-Akbar. But there are certain people who are insisting this is a Shaykh al-Akbar's statement. So this is a manhaj, mu'tadil manhaj, mu'tadil, a balanced manhaj, that we look at the statement. If it's not interpretable in terms of ta'wil qareeb, then we look at the ascription. If it is ascribed to them, then we look at the third, did they die upon this? There is a shak that... Abu al-Abbas, Ahmad bin Taymiyyah did Tawbah. Based on what some say, it's based upon al-Nasihatu al-Dhahabiyya. The letter of al-Imam Shamsuddin al-Dhahabi, rahimahullah, that he wrote to Ibn Taymiyyah, they say he repented. He repented of all his positions. Now the Salafis deny it, like they denied with regard to Ismail al-Dahlib. But desisting from takfir of Abu al-Abbas Ibn Taymiyyah is better than insisting on his takfir. Yeah. Rather err on the side of caution. Yes. So this is al manhaj al mu'tadil, and for this Californian to say that the Barelwis, uh, meaning Al Imam Ahmad Khan, rahimullah, was a takfiri, I advise him to at least because ten years ago he claimed that we did takfir of him, yeah. and he was launching statements from California, and then I was launching statements from Birmingham, like Katusha missiles. Yes, but I've made it wadih, clear. We do not even do takfir of the individual. We do not do takfir. That's not our manhaj. Our manhaj is mu'tadil, that we look at every scenario. of, And it's, sometimes it's not even an obligation to do takfir. Mm-hmm. It's essential to point out the deviancy. It's essential to refute the deviancy. The manhaj of ulama damishq. Ulama Damishq are the most balanced ulama in the world. Some people don't like me saying that 
because they want me to say the Indian ulama are the most balanced, or they want me to say the Egyptian ulama are the most balanced. No, ulama the Mishka, the most balanced I, ulama. I think it's better to say all ulama of the Ahl Sunnah are balanced. Alhamdulillah. It's a subjective view, but very on your experience. The ulama of the Mishka, yeah. they, according to your opinion, they do not. And Al Iz bin Abdi Salam, rahimahullah. Read what he writes about the ulama of Sham in every age. The ulama of Damascus, when they have an opponent, many times they do not even say his name. Many times, like a Sheikh Nuruddin Itr, rahimahullah, the Muhaddithul Asr. You know this title, Muhaddithul Asr. Some people attempt to give this to Nasiruddin Al Albani. We give this title to a Sheikh Nuruddin Itr, Muhaddithul Asr. If you look at his books, he writes, Qala ba'dul mu'asirin. Some of the contemporaries say, mm. he means Nasruddin al-Albani. He doesn't say his name, yeah. but he refutes the point. I believe sometimes this is more effective, and sometimes saying the name is effective. If you know someone has so much love, blind, fanatical love. Remember, the peer culture is not only in Indo-Pak, it's mm. in other people also. They have fanatical love for Hussein Nasr and Shuwan and Fitshaf and all these other shayateen. So much love for them that if you refute them by name, people will become mutanafir. This is my experience. Your refutation will be less effective. But if you believe there is a requirement to say the name, so there is no shubha, there is no doubt who you are referring to, then you must say the name. So this differs from scenario to scenario. So the balanced opinion of the Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah is that we do not rush to make takfir. We do not uh, go out and call everybody a kafir. We do not make blanket takfir of any sect. Rather, we analyze the statements. And some if sects. the statements... Some sects we do, like Qadianis, Ismailis, Aghakhanis. Now, I need to clarify something on this. There's a particular individual who's reported in the newspaper. So I'm not saying his name because it's a report in a newspaper. Yeah. Okay. Where he says, Ismail Agha, the man who claims to be from the descendants of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu from the Ismaili sect. He says he's a very spiritual man. Of course, this is now a vague statement. Yeah. Why would I not declare the man, the doctor who said this, a kafir? Why? Firstly, takallum. Uh, did he even say it? The newspaper is quoting him. Yes. Secondly, what did he mean by spiritual man? There is ihtimal, uh, ihtimal qareeb of what he means by spiritual. So, therefore, I will not be mutasarrih of his takfir. But there are sects which, when this confuses people because, for instance, the Nusayri sect in Syria, Imam Ibn Abidin declares them kuffar, the Qadianis, the but e- e- even when you're making takfir of a sect, you have to make sure that those people that associate with that sect actually believe that, don't you? Yes. So, so there, there, script, there might be a guy that's no, claiming to be an Usayri, but he's not. But these uh, sects are mutalabbis bi kufrihim. What do we mean by the, this? It's not like the Theobandis. The, some people, they read Fatawa Ridawiya, which was written over a hundred years ago. And Al-Imam Ahmad Rida Khan is referring to the Diyobandis in a particular context. Yeah. 100 years later when Diyabina, some people don't like me using the word Diyabina, so I'll say Diyobandiyah. 
they spread across Indian subcontinent into Afghanistan. They became mukhallat with Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah. Yes, not like Qadianis who live in enclaves. Those sects are mutalabbis bi kufrihim. The identity itself is kufr. Mm-hmm. Unlike Shia, like 12 Shia, you are mutalawineen. You have some 12 Shia who believe Anbiya Ali Musalam are superior to the Aimmatu Ahlil Bayt are superior to the Anbiya Ali Musalam, which is again a tenet of Kufar disbelief. Yeah. But the Shia sect as a whole is mutalawin. Some will not adopt this position. Some will say the position is valid. So the hukum changes from min al-fardi ila al-fard. Al-Qadiyaniya is a sect that is mutalabbis with what? With the tenet which is kufr. Meaning the very identification is kufr. So if someone says, if someone says, I am a Shi'i, takfir is not done of him. If someone says, I am a Diobandi, takfir is not done of him. These are the sects you mean. The sects that you were interjecting for, which ones? Ismailis, the Qadiyaniya, the Babis in Iran, the Baha'is, the Baha'is, these type of sect. Hamza Yusuf and Abdullah bin Bayya. Now Abdullah bin Bayya, Allah have mercy on him. He's Amin. an old man, he's a scholar mm-hmm. of the religion. But the positions he takes, billah, we respect people for their age, we respect them for their learning. Al-adab wal-akhlaq is something we learn from our ulama. But to recognize Israel, political issue, yes, as an Indian, you may interrupt me <clears throat> a political issue, but what I mean by this, in creed, they attempted, Hamza Yusuf attempted to acknowledge the Lahori sect as Muslims. When he did this, this was over 10 years ago, his followers, fanatical followers on certain websites, they said, we follow him. They said, we follow him in this regard. When they said, we follow him in this regard, the person to correct them was Maulana Danyal, a student of mine. And he even emailed a Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, the fatwa of Al-Azhar al-Sharif, or the fatwa was sent by some people to him. And then he publicly retracted. No takfir was done. No takfir was done. But what is the mistake here? Two things for everyone who has a mind to notice. Number one, his followers became emotional with us, declaring us as takfiris. Even he declared me a takfiri, which is untrue. We are not takfiri, we corrected him. And he should thank us that because of that, he he retracted and his followers retracted. Secondly, aside from the emotional attachment, is the declaring of the Lahori Qadianis as being believers was based upon him saying that they only acknowledge Mirza Ghulam Ahmed Qadiani as Al-Mahdi. They do not acknowledge him as the Rasul. Yes, as a Mujaddid. So why is he mistaken in this? Because Al-Qadiani, the individual, his kalam is thabit from him. Al-Takallum is thabit from him. Al-Mutakallim, meaning the third principle, that he died wahiran mm-hmm. upon this. And 
he died and claimed to be a prophet. So even if someone calls him a Muslim, Ijma'an, Ijma'al Ummah, because generally, this is another clarification, Takfirul A'yan is not always necessary for every individual to know. Takfirul A'yan, a specific individual is kafir. It's not essential to know. But there are specific people and individuals in history that it's essential for the one the knowledge reaches to declare them kafir, like Musaylima al-Kadhab. If someone comes along and says Musaylima al-Kadhab was a Muslim, he commits kufr because the kufr of Musaylima, that he died in kufr, was mutalabbis bi kufrihi, is something known and rejection of that becomes kufr itself. But if someone rejects the takfir of controversial individuals, like Ibn Sina, there's a, there's a riba, al-imam Abu Hamid al-Ghazali, ala ra'si wal-ayni, there is an, uh, after as-salafu salihun, there is no one I look up to more than al-imam Abu Hamid al-Ghazali, rahmallah. But al-imam Abu Hamid al-Ghazali, rahmallah, declared Ibn Sina a kafir, but then there are reports that Ibn Sina didn't toba on his deathbed. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the ijma' is not, there is no ijma' on the kufr of Ibn Sina, but there is ijma' on the kufr of Mirza Ghulam Ahmed Qadiani. It brings me on to another thing, which is Al-Kafir عند Allah, Wal-Kafir عند الشرق, Wal-Kafir عند الناس. Al-Kafir عند Allah, a man is in his hospital bed and, you know, Richard Dawkins, Allah give him iman. Let's imagine this scenario. Richard Dawkins is about to die and then on his deathbed he says, Ya Allah, I believe in you, I read. Islam answers atheism. <laughs> nice plug. Inshallah, I sent it to him. Allah give him tawfiq. And then he dies. For us, he's a kafir because that doesn't reach us. Yeah. He's al-kafir in the nas and al-kafir in the shara. Mm-hmm. But al-kafir in the Allah, no. So there may be many surprises on the day of judgment. You might have Princess Diana. Someone says, oh, she became Muslim. All mm. the Pakistanis will be happy. <laughs> And likewise, but she was al-kafira in the shara, in the sharia. She was al-kafira in the nurse. There may be other surprises. This person, all his life he was a Muslim, and then yom al-qiyamah you find that he was a munafiq. Wal-iyadu billah. So, al-kafir in the nurse is what we judge on the outward. Al-kafir in the shara, how people in the Amazon jungle, they are kufar if they do not adopt Islam. And this is important to highlight because what I believe, what a Sheikh Hamza Yusuf's uh, main internal problem is, is emotional issues with regard to political issues like the persecution of minorities. So he observes the persecution of certain minorities because they are declared kuffar, there may be some Muslims who persecute those minorities. And this is where we enter the discussion from the political arena. How far do we allow sectarianism or theological differences to allow us to interfere or influence our behavior in the political arena? So exploitation of the Diobandi and Sunni divide. Note I use the word Sunni. The Diobandi and Sunni divide in Pakistan, would we allow raw Indian intelligence 
to interfere in the the peace in Pakistan due to the Deobandi and Sunni divide? The answer is no. Would we allow the Shia Sunni different in Iraq and in Syria to interfere in the political uh, the political uh, situation in those countries? The answer is no. When you allow theological disputes to spill out into communal strife, this is Sheikh Hamza Yusuf's issue. And I believe he needs to address that and not enter into the theological differences. So he can address the persecution of minorities in the Muslim world. There's nothing wrong with addressing this. But do not change, attempt to change the theological differences. With regards to takfir, yeah. um, I think it's important to mention that takfir can only be done once dalil shari'i has been established. So What's people today, meaning uh, evidence in terms of sharia, T today people uh, make takfir, uh, handing out takfir like sweets and candy, uh, based upon audio recordings or video recordings. Based upon one video recording, they will give takfir. Uh, this is incorrect. Imam Ahmad Radha Khan mentions, mentions within his fatawa that in order to give takfir, there has to be a sanad muttasil to the qa'il. Meaning a continuous chain of that statement that has been heard from the person who, state, who stated it or it originated from. Either that or you have the original copy. So he made a statement, he wrote it down. The original copy of that author who has made that kufri statement. Or you have another copy and you have reviewed that copy with the original copy. So this is how uh, the depths of which our scholars were with regards to the ihtiyat in takfir and, and, and being precautious with regards to takfir. Imam Al-Ghazali rahimahullah ta'ala says within Al-Iqtisad Fil-I'tiqad that doing uh, rush takfir or rushing to make, to make takfir is one of the attributes of the juhala. Wal khawarij. Wal khawarij. And the ignorant people. Ignorant people. So, um, who is Maulana Sheikh Asad? Who is able to make takfir? Who has the right to, like, for example, brother in the audience, uh, if I ask him, uh, is that person a kafir? Is he obliged to formulate an opinion? Does he have to make takfir? Does any scholar who studied, for example, he's done hifth and he starts making takfir of people, whose, whose job is it or who has the authority to call somebody else a kafir or to make takfir of somebody? Uh, I think uh, Sheikh touched on it earlier. The one who is a, uh, we would say al-mufti, the one who is a qualified scholar, who has the ability to understand the istidlal, who has the ability to, to, to decipher the kalam, the takallum, and, and even contact the mutakallim, speak to him, understand the issue, and give the ihtimalat. And after that, if it comes to the level of iltizam, only then a mufti, a scholar, a qualified individual can give takfir. Not any Tom Abdullah and Harry can just... Within know. the scope of takallum, it's important in to this, mention. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah, Sorry. In this day and age, it's essential to refute the statement itself and the tenet, yes. as opposed to attacking the individual. Mm. Because then the message is lost amongst the people. And I have more experience than many people in this regard. This is the nasiha I gave certain individuals in private that discuss the actual issues as opposed to making it a personal issue with others. 
Do not make it a personal issue with others. Discuss the actual deviancy. And with regard to what you mentioned of a tathabut, over 12 years ago, I contacted a person who said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has small or swears in the Quran. <laughs> he said to me, the video has been tampered. So I desisted from refuting him as an individual, even though I refuted the masala, the the masala itself. Mm. So this is a tathabut al-hukm. Uh, he mentioned with regards to takallum, it's important to mention, uh, meaning the attributing or ascribing the statement or the action to the originator or the person who made the statement or did the action. It's important that if the statement is made in a particular language, you ask a scholar who is well versed in that language as well. That's, that's so true. if a person made a statement in the English language, you want to go to a scholar in Pakistan who has never heard of the words that he is speaking of. He, as mentioned by many of the scholars, that if a person is not well versed in that language, or he does not know the nuances of that language, he will not make takfir. Yeah, if, if a qawl, if a qawl, a saying of an individual, and this is in regards to anything, has ibham, has some sort of, uh, you know, ambiguity. Uh, ambiguity, right? From the person who is saying it, and there is a possibility of there being an interpretation, or you can do ihtimal of that, then it's imperative that you speak to the mutakallim, i.e. the person who said that statement, and you find out exactly what he means by that. Otherwise, you you would reserve your judgment upon him. I think also the with what Sheikh is saying, it's very important. And the manhaj of, as you said, the, the ulama of Dimashq, right? Or Dimashq. What's the correct pronunciation? Lughatan, Dimashq or Dimashq. Dimashq, ayyoh. So, uh, the concept of refuting the the thing itself, or the ideology, rather than talking about individuals, is a wiser thing to do. In context though, if you believe there's an essential need to mention the person, then yes. sometimes it can become fard. Like mentioned Mirza Ghulam Ahmed Qadiani, it's By essential, mutaayyan, you yes, specify him. This Mirza Mansoor, mm. Osoor, <laughs> these various individuals, it's essential to specify in those cases. But there are, if there is a Sunni alim who makes a khata, then there is a process and it's not always essential to mention him. Especially if you know that people are attached to him individually, emotionally attached. It's essential just to refute the point because you do not want people to adopt those deviances. So there are people <clears throat> who respect certain individuals, but they do not adopt the deviant belief of that individual. So sometimes it becomes obligatory upon an individual to mention the name. And sometimes it's better if you as a scholar, nobody's going to decide that for you, but you as a scholar can decide that it's better and it's more suited and it's more wise to conceal the name and refute the ideology rather than refuting the person. But sometimes when you know that the person may, come great, uh, may cause greater harm to you and your Sunni laity, then it may be better and more wiser and necessary for you actually to mention the name of the person. So that was with regards to Daruriyatuddin and Takfir. So those things which are known within the religion by necessity, that believing in them things is what makes you a Muslim and denying not all of them, but denying even a single one of them will make you a Kafir, will make you a disbeliever. Now there's a level below that, which is the level of that's where the sectarian divide comes in, in our normal understanding, which is the sects, right? 
or the factions. Al-Madhahib al-Tawhidiyya, the monotheistic schools. Yeah. So amongst them, we have something known as Daruriyatu Ahlu Sunnah. So you have within Muslims or those people who call themselves Muslims, you have sects within them and they have their own names. Okay. And those are the individuals that we as the Ahlu Sunnah believe that a lot of their beliefs are not kufr. They don't entail kufr. If they entail kufr, then that's not even in this part of the discussion. They are not Ahlu Sunnah. They are kafir. Okay, they are outside the folds of Islam. That's what we just discussed in the previous section. Now, those people who hold beliefs which are not from the daruriyat of deen, meaning they are not from the necessities of the religion, what is the hukm of these, these people? What are the zaruriyat of the Ahlul Sunnah? Like, as to be a Sunni, I alhamdulillah proudly call myself a Sunni, but what do I have to believe? I'm asking on behalf of the layman. I'm a Sunni, I know what I believe, alhamdulillah. <laughs> right? As a Sunni, what do I have to believe to remain a Sunni? Because in this day and age, it's easier to be a non-Sunni than be a Sunni. As some people have claimed that you are naturally a non-Sunni until, until you are proven a Sunni. Okay, which is a complete false statement. So, with regard to Daruriya to Ahli Sunnah, Ji. You have sects like Alibadiya, Zaydiya, the Shia, uh, the Wahhabis. These are sects which are Muslims. And then you have Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah. If you read the creed of Imam Abu Ja'far Ahmad al-Tahawi, when you read through this creed, you will be able to categorize those tenets of faith which he lists into two categories. One category is that which is ma'loom fi deen bi darura, the category that we have already discussed. Yep. The second category is that which is al ma'loom bi darura, inda ahli sunnah, known by necessity with ahli sunnah wal jama'ah. Like what? Like the vision of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The, the vision of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the believers seeing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the akhirah is established from the Qur'an and Sunnah. But what's the difference? The difference is that it could be Qat'iyu Thabut, but Dhaniyu Dalala. Qat'iyu Thabut established with decisiveness, meaning the Qur'an, all of the Qur'an is established with decisiveness, the transmission. But Dhaniyu Dalala is that it's near certainty in its implication. And therefore there's Ihtimalul Khata' For someone to misunderstand, there is a possibility. So this is why the person is not declared as being out of the fold of Islam. Similarly, if there is a hadith mutawatir, mass transmitted hadith, but the hadith mutawatir is ghaniyu dalala, its implication is near certainty, the person who misunderstands the hadith is not declared a disbeliever. Or if there is khabrul ahad, Solitary hadith reports which are qat'iyu dalala. Hmm. So, ghaniyu thabut, qat'iyu dalala. Then, again, a person who rejects the dalala is not declared out of the fold of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah. Those beliefs are then, you can say, listed in the books of Imam Abu Ja'far Ahmad al Tahawi rahimullah. Generally speaking, anyone who adopts the creed of Imam Abu Ja'far al-Tahawi regarding which Imam al-Subki rahimahullah said that it contains the creed of al-Asha'ira wal-Maturidiyah 
عن أهل الأثر من أفاضل الحنابلة أفاضل الحنابلة because the itlaq of the word hanabila sometimes people take it to mean mujassima hmm. yes so sometimes they'll say hanabila said this hanabila said that and they they will ascribe deviancy to them yeah. so when i use the word barelwiya and you use the itlaq of the word hanabila sometimes you would have to place the clause afadilul hanabila yes so afadilul barelwiya similarly so al-imam abu ja'far Ahmad al-Tahawi, if you read through the creed, that is the creed of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah. If a common Muslim adopts that creed, he's a Sunni. Why the later sect cause more confusion in the layman is because they bring up subjects which people cannot decipher. So, imkanul kathib, the belief that Allah has qudra over lying. This is now confusing the lay people. Every common sense a common sense sensing person will say the divine power of allah does not relate to lying but there are people who adopt this belief similarly in making the layman believe that the yadullah in yadullah fawqa aydihim the uh, the yadullah entails or implicates implicates a an appendage for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is the belief of al-mushabbihin, al-mutashabbihin, those who make likeness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with the makhluk. These later groups are the ones that confuse the masses of Ahl sunnah wal jamaah. So how, how did these late, not even later, how did these earlier groups form? So you have the umbrella of Muslims, that's how it started from the Prophet Nizam, this is for you. You started as Muslims, then how did these sects come about? How did the Muslims then divide into different factions? These are people that we do not make takfir of because their bid'ah in religion, their innovation in creed does not reach the level of kufr. However, it takes them out of the folds of the Ahlul Sunnah. Their bid'ah takes and their innovation in creeds take them out of the fold of Ahlul Sunnah. How did this come about? So as after the time of the Sahaba, when the fitan started to grow, uh, the first, the first, the Sahaba were also called Ahl Sunnah, uh, the people of the Sunnah, meaning those who attributed themselves uh, and restricted their actions and the i'tiqad with the Sunnah of the Prophet and they were the Jama'ah as well, meaning those who are gathered upon the Haq, upon the truth. So they were called Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah, and thereafter the Tabi'een were also called Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah, and then thereafter those who followed them in goodness and those who, as those laymen, those people who followed. Those great men of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala were also referred to as Ahlul Sunnati wal Jama'ah. This word was used to, uh, you know, distinguish themselves from the uh, innovators in the religion, those who have bid'ah within the religion, like the Khawarij, yes? uh, like the Mu'tazila, those, who, those groups who came at the at early, early uh, history of Islam. So to distinguish from those sects and those factions, uh, the word Ahlul Sunnati wal Jama'ah was used. Yeah, with regard to the first sects, the first sect itself was the Khawarij in the time of Sayyiduna Ali yeah, radiallahu anhu. Initially, they dis they abandoning the Jama'ah of Sayyiduna Ali radiallahu was political. But then they adopted tenets of faith which were in contradistinction to the companions, like declaring a person of Kabira or a sin, a person who does a sin, a dhikakir. 
So they were a group of takfiris. They would declare Muslims as disbelievers. From this khawarij, this early group from the group that assassinated Sayyiduna Uthman radiallahu anhu, you had a group which initially was known as Shi'ani Ali radiallahu anhu. This initial Shi'ani Ali, there were some people who held some views in contradistinction to Sayyiduna Ali radiallahu anhu himself. But if you read, for instance, Al-Jami'a of Imam Al-Tirmidhi, you will find Ruwatul Hadith who accompanied Sayyiduna Ali radiallahu anhu who did not report deviancy from Sayyiduna Ali radiallahu So that means they accompanied Sayyiduna Ali radiallahu for the political division. But from their progeny, when you check Taqribu Tahdeeb and Tahdeeb Tahdeeb and Lisanul Mizan and the books of Tarajimur Rijal, you will find that what is ascribed to them is a rift, meaning the rejection of the Shaykhain. So in the first generation that associated itself with Sayyiduna Ali radiallahu the overwhelming majority did not hold deviant beliefs. But I would say the martyrdom of Sayyiduna Ali Imam Hussein radiallahu was one political action which resulted in a sectarian split that that group of people isolated themselves even more from the main body of Muslims in Al-Kufa and other cities. Then you have, of course, as it mentioned by Abdul Aziz Barharwi in Nibras in the beginning that the Abbasi Caliphs, they mm. issued the, the official yeah. uh, sanctioning of translation of books of Greek philosophy into the Muslim world. And you have the Mu'tazili sect being born from that. And then the Mu'tazila divided into over 15 sects. This is why you cannot even make blanket takfir of Mu'tazila. Yeah. Because then you would have to be asked, which, which particular sect within the Mu'tazila are you declaring kuffar? Mm. So the Mu'tazila were not always mutalabbisin bi kufrim. They had tenets which were in contradistinction, like believing that humans create their own actions. But the takfir was not done by some ulama simply because they believe Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala creates that ability to create. So this is where the sectarianism, you will find today's sectarianism will have its all its roots in one of three sects. Tawarij, Mu'tazila, and Rawahid. Any bid'ah within the sectarian division, because otherwise they will have their roots with the Musaylim al-Kadhab. But within the sectarian division, like Al-Qudra al-Kadhib, Allah having Qudra upon lying, you will find these type of beliefs in some of the Mu'tazila. Uh, the uh, the Mujassima, you'll find that also in some branches of even surprisingly the Mu'tazila, but also oh, the Rawafid. Mm-hmm. Even the modern Rawafid, who are referred to as Al-Imamiyah, they adopt mainly Mu'tazili positions. So today's Shia reject the vision of Allah in the Akhirah. They reject this. Today's Shia, they have a similar position on the Sifat of Allah to the Mu'tazila. Also, the position of as-salih wal-aslah of the Mu'tazila, that it's essential for Allah to dispatch al-immah. So these are, this is the, the roots of sectarianism, but it goes down to the hadith. سَتَفْتَرِقُ أُمَّتِي إِلَى ثَلَاثٍ وَالسَّبْعِينَ فِرْقَةً كُلُّهُمْ فِي النَّارِ إِلَّا وَاحِدَةً قَالُوا مَنْ هُمْ يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ قَالَ مَا أَنَا عَلَيْهِ وَأَصْحَابِي And in another version of the hadith, al-jama'ah. And the word al-jama'ah was in the time of Muawiyah 
radiyallahu anhu when al-imam al-hasan radiyallahu anhu gave bay'ah to muawiyah they referred to this as amul jama'ah the year of the jama'ah the congregation and therefore the term ahl sunnah wal jama'ah so uh, you heard a term that that a person who does not hold a belief of kufr but holds an innovated belief in the religion right it's important to understand that the word bid'ah is thrown thrown around these days on many matters what does this term actually mean as you heard from the sheikh in the early centuries the term bid'ah the term bid'ah was never used for bid'ah in a'mal any bid'ah in actions maybe here that it might have but generally when a person was called a mubtadi okay a person who innovates is known as a mubtadi that person was termed a mubtadi not because according to you he was celebrating maulid right it was because he held beliefs that were contrary to the beliefs of the ahlus sunnah wal jamaah okay is that the usage of the term that's correct right so moving on from there a person who holds a belief which is not kufr is then termed a mubtadi now why do we not call that person a kafir but we call them mutadimanism why do we call a person who does not declare anything that is from the statements of uh, belief rather he something he believes something which is contrary to the aqidah of the ahl sunnah why do we say he's not a disbeliever and why do we say he's a deviant that's the term used uh, the answer to this is that because the individual is still muslim he still affirms the articles of faith known in the religion by necessity meaning the dhururiyat of the deen so therefore he's still muslim but he's a deviant the reason being because he rejects one of the articles of dhururiyat of ahl sunnati wal jamaah so because of this he's referred to as a deviant so when i would add to that taliqan dhanni dalala as i mentioned that it could be qat'i uh, thubut dhanni dalala dhanni dalala means that there's not absolute certainty, uh, certainty in the signification of the belief because of that ihtimalul khata we do not declare them as disbelievers now ibn rajab al hanbali rahimahullah nasir rahimahullah after his name because there's a guilt by association thing which some people keep bringing up like abul fida ismail bin kathir some indian subcontinent ulama disrespect him with harsh terms mm. when in reality he was a scholar of ahl sunnah wal jamaah there's no bid'ah found in his works but ibn rajab al hanbali rahimahullah in his commentary on al ilm al saghir of tirmidhi he in that commentary he mentions bid'ah khafifa in contradistinction to bid'ah thaqila now bid'ah thaqila is two types luzum wal iltizam so if someone has luzum al kufr or iltizam al kufr we refer to that as bid'ah also but bid'ah thaqila bid'ah khafifa is that which falls into a lesser category so the hadith that states sallu khalfa kulli barri mafajir pray your salah behind every pious person and every transgressor some of the people they use this to say you can pray behind ahlul bid'ah but if you check in sharh al qaid of taftazani you check the commentaries they mention bil karahati inda al ahnaf it's disliked meaning makru tahriman according to the ahnaf to pray behind ahlul bid'ah but which bid'ah do they mean bid'ah khafifa mm. if he has bid'ah thaqila then the salah is not done yeah. uh, because that luzum al kufr entails iltizam according mm. to the fuqaha so therefore bid'ah khafifa is what is meant 
And the, one of the examples they give is uh, the nun, the person who does not do tafdilu shaykhain, who does not affirm the superiority of a shaykhain. Sayyiduna Abu Bakr and Sayyiduna Umar, radiallahu anhuma, why? Tafdilu Sayyiduna Abu Bakr siddiq radiallahu anhuma, is one me. Min wajhin wa qat'iyun min wajhin akhar. So some people confuse this. They say, look, dhwanni. Therefore, you do not need to believe in it. But they are incorrect. It's one, what we refer to as daruriyatu ahli sunnah wal jama'ah, all of them are qat'iyun min wajh, wa dhwanniyun min wajhin akhar. So bid'ah entails those beliefs, those tenets, which do not take the person out of the fold of Islam, but the implication is ghalibu dhwan. In the implication of the dalala of the nas is ghalibu dhwan, or the dalala is qat'i, but the thabut is dhwanni. So when we say that a person is a deviant, we mean that he's not a kafir. That's, uh, sometimes the, the term is interchangeable. When we say he's a deviant, we refer to the term, and it's very important for the lay people as well to understand this, this terminology. Because a lot of times we, you might hear a scholar say, this is a deviant belief, and you'll begin to think that this person's a disbeliever. Okay, that's not the case. You have to ask the scholar what he meant by when he said deviant. Deviant in the meaning of kafir or deviant or heretic in the, mean of, in the meaning of kafir or in the meaning of mubtadi'ah. Does he hold innovated beliefs, okay? Beliefs that are not part of the Ahlul Sunnati wal Jama'ah. So now you have a distinction between those who are the Ahlul Sunnati wal Jama'ah, the people of the Sunnah and the people of the community. Then you have other sects, okay? I don't want to mention too many names, the list of names is exhaustive itself, right? There are so many people who hold innovated beliefs within the religion, they are not from the Ahlul Sunnati wal Jama'ah. Now the question is, what happens with these sects, like um, uh, Shaykh As'ad, what should our dealing be with these individuals, these people who have innovated within religion, those people who have made false accusations of belief to the Ahlul Sunnah, etc. They do a multitude of things. That's why we call them Mubtadi'. What should our dealing with be, should, uh, what should our dealing be with these sort of people? Could you qualify the question? When you are saying our dealing, are you referring to the general public, or are you referring to I'm, the ulama? I'm referring first and foremost to the ulama. Okay. So how should the ulama deal with heretics? How should the ulama deal with deviancy? The first thing with the, with any, uh, the job of the alim or the job of the one who is a warith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. It's not burda time. Okay, so the one who is a, a, a warith of, of, of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, his aim is to do exactly what the Rasul sallallahu alayhi wasallam came to do. And that is to bring people to the truth. So the one who is a warith of the Nabi sallallahu alayhi wasallam, his dealings with the deviant are very different to the dealings of general people. Because his aim is to try and take that person outside of deviancy if that is possible, if, if he knows that he has the capability of doing so. And that means if he, is, he has to go and speak to him, he can speak to him. If he has to question him, he can question him. He can do that because that is his job as an alim. As for anybody who is a non-alim, then it is wajib upon him based upon the verse of the Qur'an. Okay, فَلَا تَقْعُدْ بَعْدَ الذِّكْرَ مَعَ الْقَوْمِ الظَّالِمِينَ It's then necessary for that individual to stay away from the deviant because he does not have the ability to influence that individual to turn to the truth. 
So for example, if you, if you know or you've been told that there is an ex-scholar who is a deviant, then for you, if you are not an alim, then it's, it's necessary for you to, try, to stay away from that individual. Okay, because it could be detrimental to your faith. It could rather be detrimental, depending on what type of deviant it is, it could be detrimental to your beliefs or detriment, detrimental to your sunniyat. Okay, but if you're an alim, it's a different hukum. And that's with anything, if it's a deviant scholar. With regard to that, uh, Imam Yusuf al-Nabahani, rahimahullah in Sabilun Najat, and Imam Ahmad Khan in Fatawa al-Haramain, they mention the alim who sits with Ahlul Bid'ah must be mutamakkin fi ilmi wa taqwahu. That the alim who sits with deviants, he must be mutamakkin fi ilmi wa taqwahu, which is rare. Mutamakkin fi ilm is meaning firm in his knowledge. And, and wa taqwahu. So therefore, the, uh, the alim, the term alim does not refer to someone who has just graduated or has a basic understanding, meaning mm. a Bahari Shriyat Mulmi. <laughs> yes, it refers to someone who is mutamakkin fi ilm al-kalam, meaning ilm al-kalam. He's read sharh al-mawaqif, sharh al-maqasid, as tamakkun in them, al-nihayat al-uqool fi dirayat al-usool, meaning all these works. And he's able to. This is for a unravel Sunni scholar that bit. sits with a deviant scholar, not a Sunni scholar that sits with a deviant layman. Yes. So with yes, the layman, the, the with the layman, the alim is the all the Sunni ulama are permitted to sit with the layman from the ahlul bid'ah yeah. in order to guide them. That the the ulama and within the awam there are rankings. There is some awam who know the aqidah well enough to guide other awam. They can sit with the awam of Ahlul Bid'ah to bring them back. There are some Sunni awam who have a lesser understanding than the awam of the Ahlul Bid'ah. They are not permitted to sit with them in a religious basis. It doesn't mean if your plumber is a, your Salafi plumber comes to change your boiler, you are rude to him. Or the, the, your baker is a Shia or whatever, meaning you, you carry on with your dealings. Another point I wanted to mention was the maratib of the bid'ah, like taqlidul madhahib al-arba'ah is fr- from those masail which is mujma' alayh, but there's no nas from Quran and Sunnah. Yeah. It's nasun min al-ulama, like al-imam Fakhruddin al-Razi, other ulama from after the 5th century, they said, it's essential to follow one of the four schools, meaning it's an, a mas'ala established from ijma'. So there are some ijma' issues that are ijma' of Ahl Sunnah, but they have no nas from Quran and Sunnah. One of them is an example, as an example, is ijma' an al-madhahib al-arba'ah. But there are other mas'ala which have some nas from the Quran and Sunnah. The, uh, the, the alim, the scholar, uh, who shares stages with deviant ulama, it is permissible for him to represent the stance of Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah. I'm going to give you one example uh, from the time of Imam Ahmad Rada Khan rahimahullah ta'ala. Imam Ahmad Rada Khan rahimahullah gave a fatwa of kufr against Sir Sayyid Ahmad Khan, mm-hmm. the founder of Aligarh University. Yes? He died in 1898. Allah Hazrat Rahimahullah Ta'ala passed away in 1921. Ten years after the death of Sir Sayyid Ahmad Khan, the founder of Aligarh University, a Nechri, 
he was a kafir according to the fatwa of Imam Hadrudakhan rahimahullah ta'ala. Ten years after that, one of the ajilla khulafa, the senior khulafa of Imam Ahmad Rada Khan rahimahullah ta'ala, Mawlana Sayyid Sulaiman Ashraf Bihari rahimahullah ta'ala. He was given the position of the head of Islamic studies in Aligarh University. Yes? So, it is permissible for a non, uh, for, for a Sunni scholar to represent the Ahl Sunnati wal Jama'ah in non-religious uh, circumstances to show the stance of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah. Likewise, uh, many people don't know, Sadr al-Shari'ah, Allama Amjad Ali Azmi rahimahullahu ta'ala, was also called to the meetings where the board was discussing the syllabus of this university. In 1926, from the 7th of February all the way to the 11th of February, Mufti Amjad Ali Azmi rahimahullahu ta'ala attended Aligarh University founded by a person who was declared as a kafir. Mm-hmm. So it, it doesn't mean if a scholar attends an institute or a masjid where the founder is a deviant or a kafir, it doesn't mean the scholar who attended the gathering is a kafir himself or deviant just yeah. for attending. That scholar, Ashraf Suleiman, you mentioned he's written a book on fiqh al also. That's right. What's the name of the book? He wrote a book on... Uh, al Mubin. Yeah, al Mubin. Very good book. And uh, he was a Shafi also. Uh, no, he wasn't a Shafi. No. no, no. So he, that book, al Mubin, is on philology, and he's, he was also a graduate yes. from Aligarh University. He also has a, a commentary on Kafia uh, as well. So, Nadwatul Ulama, we mm-hmm. want to Nadwatul Ulama, oh, so, Darul yeah. Diyaband, all these institutions of learning. All these factions. If an so, alim there's a fatwa of Allah Hadrat in volume 21. I've quoted this properly. Which Volume, edition? The Lahore edition? The old Pakistan edition, the red one. He mentions that in volume 20, this is for anybody to go out and read. There's a lot of people here who have a lot of interesting reading Fatah Ridwiya, maybe certain individuals as well. They should go out and read this fatwa on in volume 21, page 267. Page 267, the Imam Rahimahullah is questioned whether it is permissible for a scholar and alim to go into a university which teaches some matters of kufr, which teaches some uh, things which are against the religion of Islam, is it permissible to do that? He answers, and his answer, that's the beauty of Imam Ahmadidah Khan, that his answer is always complete. He doesn't leave any room for, oh no, but if this, oh no, but if that. Right? His answer is very complete. He says what the Shaykh was mentioning earlier, if that scholar is mutamakkin, Meaning he is firm in his belief and he knows in his heart that he will be able to preach the correct aqidah, okay, and save students or save people, even the public life. For example, you may be in a gathering where the Sunni scholar is able to propagate the truth and he is able to save the people from deviancy. The Imam says, this is not haram, this is not makruh, this is rather a great reward for that individual. But again, with conditions that the scholar doing this is mutamakkin, he's firm in his belief, okay? And this was the fatwa which was uh, as understood amongst the people to be for the Khalifa of Allah Hadrat as Mawlana Nizam was just mentioned. If someone did that today, uh, people would rush to call that person Sulay Kulli. Yep, just because a person... We need to discuss that term as well. We need to discuss that term. We're moving on to that. Now these other factions, Shaykh, for example, you have the Dayabina, you have the Wahhabiyya, you have the Salafiyya. Uh, we don't make blanket takfir of them, okay? 
No, we do not. No. We do not. We do not make blanket takfir. We don't say all Jawbandis are kafir or all Wahhabis are kafir. Also, no. Okay, that's a principle that you've understood from the first one and a half hours. If you've not taken at least that away, then go back and watch it again. We do not do that. That is not the position of the scholars of the Ahlul Sunnati wal Jama'ah to make blanket takfir of these sects. Rather, we assess everything as was clear. But, Shaykh, do you believe or do you think that a lot of those people that associate with these terms or with these sects, do you believe at the very least a lot of them possess Aqaid, which are not necessarily kufr, but rather they are innovators. Meaning the aqaid, the beliefs that they possess are innovations within the religion. So at the very least, they are mubtadir. Would so that be a correct generalization if, to if make I or not? To, firstly, with the Ibadi and Zaydi sect, we leave them aside. We'll talk about the ones that are common amongst the common, them. The common, we would divide into two, what are referred to as Wahhabis and Shia. We would place the Ubandiyya within the category of Wahhabi, Hanafi Wahhabi, or Gulabi Wahhabi. When they're in this category, within that category, the Ahkam are towards individuals. For instance, there are statements in their books, but then there are those positions which are adopted by the lay people. And even, let's make a third set, which I would refer to as Al-Mutasawwifa or pseudo-Sufis and pseudo-Brelmis. Mm -hmm. Love them people, don't you? That group, for instance, in the Indian subcontinent, mm -hmm. there are people who would be labeled as pseudo-Sufis and pseudo-Brelmis also. Okay. So like I mentioned, Umar Ichrawi and the statements he has in his books, you have these people... Uh, well, why, why do you, I'm going to stop you on this. Why do you specify the term pseudo Barilvis and why pseudo specific? Why, why do you not you say pseudo Sunnis? So why I say pseudo Sufis? Pseudo Sunnis? Pseudo Sufi. No, because the word Sunni is Khalis in its usage. But if you say pseudo Sunnis who call themselves Sunnis, we can also label them as being pseudo Sunnis. If we say in the sense that they label themselves as Why is it to say that? Because the Salafi will also... It, be, I uh, would use the word pseudo-Sufis. So you have in um, in Ajmer uh, Sharif, for yeah. instance, you have people in Ajmer Sharif who declared Al-Imam Ahmad Rida Khan rahimahullah, as a Kharji. Yes? Mm -hmm. So in that sense, they would not be even pseudo-Barelis. They would be pseudo-Sufis or pseudo... You said Sunni, it's, but pseudo-Sufis. It's, it's a vast... If you, if you specify Barelvi, that causes more problems than benefits. So in this case, you know, in uh, Al-Mu'taqad, Al-Imam Ahmad Khan also designates Al-Mutasawwifa as a sect. Yep. Yeah. Yes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we will stick with that. Okay. Yeah, we'll call them yes? Pseudo-Sufis. So pseudo-Sufis. Okay. Is that clear to everyone? That's yeah, a bit clear, to clear yeah. So Moralism, is that okay? Within, within those three categorizations, for instance, in Birmingham, we had an imam who led the prayer for 40 years. We thought he was a Sunni. It became clear afterwards he was uh, what some would refer to as al-wujudi al-akbari. I don't like ascribing him to a Shaykh al-akbar. But al-wujudi al-akbari is someone who believes everything in the universe is Allah. Yes? A misinterpretation oh, of uh, the teachings of a Shaykh Muhyiddin ibn Arabi, which entails kufr. Mm -hmm. So he was removed from Imamat and people had prayed Salah behind him for 40 years. He wouldn't fall into the Wahhabi or Shia sect 
he would fall into this third vague category. Mm. Yes, the pseudo Sufis or Mutasawwifa or whatever names people want to give them. <laughs> When we observe these three groups, uh, the going back to the original uh, question, there are shades within the groups, spectrums, spectrums. Mm. So that you, what people refer to as al ghali Piyaghali is someone who insults Sayyiduna Abu Bakr Siddiq radiyallahu anhu, Sayyidatuna Aisha radiyallahu anha, believes in tahrif al-Quran, even though I believe those are less than before, but believes in tahrif al-Quran, which is kufar, gives superiority of the a'immatu ahli al-bayt over anbiya alim al-salam. Then you have people with a lesser categorized, meaning within the spectrum, who fall within ahlul islam. Similarly, within Wahhabism, you may have someone who is a ghali Wahhabi who believes Julusullah ala al-arsh haqiqatan. Yes, such type of statements. But then you will have someone who will be vague in his wordings and they will fall under the general categorization of al-mutashabbihin. Hmm. And then within the Diobandiyah, you will have those who affirm those type of statements, meaning Brahina qati'ah, hifzul iman. And then... Those who do not, but they hold views which entail bid'ah, like denial of the ilmul ghayb of the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu that he was given ilmul ghayb, or making a mockery of, that. of the knowledge given to the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu And then categorization law, with the diobandiya, the spectrum is more broad. There is a segment that is closer to Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah within the lay people who do not believe in many of those bid'ahs. So this is something that cannot be, uh, I cannot give a broad statement like how you, you interjected with me saying about pseudo brelvia Similarly, you can't give a generalization. You cannot give a generalization, meaning I'm attempting to avoid that within that spectrum of the Ubandis. That's for ulama to determine within their localities. So like in Pakistan, you have Maulana Saeed Asad, who's attempting to coordinate, sitting with the, the Ubandis and discussing with them and dialoguing with them to bring about unity upon creed of Ahl Sunnah. Yes? So reaching out to the sect today is to bring them back. So if, if an alim is going out to reach out to the sect, The purpose can be one of two, as I can see. One is to bring them back within the fold. So reaching out to the pseudo-Sufi, pseudo-Sunni, pseudo-whatever. <laughs> Just don't Like Mufti Munibur Rahman. He yeah. reaches out to pseudo-Sunni groups. Yes, Mufti Munibur Rahman in Pakistan, you'll see him sitting with some of these Sufi practitioners. Not real... Even using the term Sufi would be problematic. It's problematic. Because, it, it is. Because there's real Sufis also. Yeah. But you know what I mean. Yes. The, he will reach out to the, the Khanqas. Because within the Khanqas, there are people who have deviant beliefs in some. So I have to put the clothes. Some of the Khanqas. Yeah. So he would have to reach out to them. Yeah. Similarly, Sayyid Asad reaching out to the Diobandiya. There may be Sunni ulama who even reached out to the Shia. Yes. But... They must be unequivocal on the belief and they must avoid the danger of confusing the Sunni masses. These are clauses and conditions. A second scenario 
is reaching out to them for political purposes. So, so some groups are not necessarily sects. So we'd have to make a distinction here. Ikhwan al-Muslimin is not a sect. It's a political group. Hizb al-Tahrir is not a sect. Jamaat-e-Islami is not a sect. These are political groups that within them they have people of all types of beliefs. So the Ikhwan al-Muslimin in Syria, the ulama Sunni, Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah. In Egypt, they are a mixture of Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah and Salafis. The, the broad range of people varies because it's a political group. Therefore, even when a person like these scholars in the past, Abdul Sattar Khan, Niyazi, Al-Alama, all these scholars, they sat with sects as well as political groups for a political motive mm. and a political goal. Even a Sheikh Abdul Fattah Abu Ghudda, Rahimullah, was a old one, uh, Muslimin, was a part of Ikhwan al-Muslimin until he left them. Even a Sheikh Suleiman Wahbi al-Ghawji of Syria, he was a part of Ikhwan and he left them. They left these groups later because they realized the political groups do not achieve as much as teaching the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So there is a fiqh of mu'amalat, a fiqh of mu'amalat in dealing with all of these groups and how we do mu'amalat with these particular groups. That's in terms of people being deviant and how you should deal with them. The final segment, which we'll dumb it down and shorten it, inshallah, yeah. the time has Very gone good. quite a lot, is with regards to extremism in fiqh. Okay, so look, there's three parameters as we set out. One was kufr, which is disbelief. The second is uh, mubtadi', a person who innovates or innovations bid'ah. Now that you have fiqhs, you have four schools, within the fiqhs. You have the Hanafi, you have the Shafi'i, you have the Maliki, and you have the Hanbali schools. Within these schools, a person is either born into one, or a person adopts one of these schools of thought in terms of his jurisprudence. The first two segments were about Aqeedah. This is about his practice, how he prays his Salah, how he fasts, which rulings he follows, etc, etc. Amongst these four schools, you have differences, differences of opinions. Uh, Maulana, uh, Shaykh As'ad, if you're able to quickly summarize the differences of opinion in the four schools and why the four schools came about and why we follow one school of thought and not pick and choose. Okay, a, a very basic summary is after the, the, the passing of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam from this physical world, um, the Sahaba those who had uh, collated a hadith from the Prophet وسلم, known as the, the Fuqaha, the Sahaba like that, they dispersed to different areas. When they dispersed to different areas, they took whatever they, they understood or they had in terms of knowledge, okay, to different areas. For example, uh, Sayyidina uh, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud who went to Kufa, uh, and, and uh, you know, various different uh, Sahaba went to different places. Um, and then, of course, they had to propagate the deen according to what they understood uh, when, it when it came to fiqh, when it came to the practical rulings of uh, the religion. Uh, the Prophet ﷺ did many different things, okay, in many different ways throughout, throughout his life. Okay, for example, he may have made wudu in a different way, or like for example, the mas'h. He may, he, he may have made it وسلم, in a different way. He may have prayed in a different way. Certain companions had knowledge of that. Certain companions accepted Islam later and had knowledge of certain things. When they spread to different lands, 
they whatever they understood from the Sunnah and from the Quran and whatever they were blessed with in terms of their ijtihad because the, those scholars were mujtahidun. Okay, they preached to those people. Um, so as time goes by, people obviously are like the 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 practices in Kufa, for example, were very different to the practices in Madinatul Munawwara. Uh, then of course, if we start from the life of Imam Shafi'i, Muhammad ibn Idris al-Shafi'i rahimahullahu ta'ala wa radiyallahu an, it makes it easier, he was born in uh, Gaza, Palestine, he moved to Mecca, okay, and he, he was born in 150 after Hijri, whereas Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullahu ta'ala, Imam al-A'zam, passed away in 150 Hijri, okay, but when he went to Madinatul Munawwara, uh, first he was teaching in Makkah al-Mukarramah for a while uh, and then he went to Bandit al-Munawwara and he, was, he studied with Imam Malik rahimahullah ta'ala and the way they taught in, in Madinat al-Munawwara was a very, they were known as Ahlul, uh, Ahlul Hadith at that time because they were very strict with the understanding of the Hadith, okay? So they, they didn't need to put, because there was no, as you say, takhallut uh, uh, there was no mixture in their understanding. They were from Medina. So there was no mixture. Imam Malik taught them in a particular way. Imam Shafi'i, when he traveled to Kufa, he found that people were doing things differently. Okay, and that's because certain ahadith weren't exposed to Imam Shafi'i. They were given to the people of Kufa by Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu ardawud, which weren't included in, in, in the ahadith. Uh, which were in Madinatul Munawwara, in the Muatta, for example. So then he, he, he spent his time with Imam Muhammad al-Shaybani, understanding that there were different ways of doing certain things, okay? And these differences are valid, okay, according to the Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah. However, when it comes to certain rulings, uh, they are linked, interlinked with other rulings. And therefore, one person may say, if everything is correct, why can we not just take from anything? For example, the ayah of uh, Mas'h, as I gave the example, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran, He says, Ya ayyuhal ladheena amanu, idha qumtum ila salah, faghsilu wujuhakum wa aydiyakum ila al-marafiq, wa msahu biru'usikum wa arjulakum ila al-ka'bayn. Allah says, O oh, you who believe when you stand up for salah, wash your faces, wash your um, arms up to your elbows. And of course, according to the, the Hanafis, including the elbows, in fact, according to the majority, including the elbows, and wipe your heads. وَمْسَحُوا بِرُؤُسِكُمْ The B in the wiping of the heads has four different opinions. According to Imam Hanifa rahimahullah, it is for ilsaq, which means to attach. So if you are to attach your hand to your head, how much does it cover? A quarter. And therefore for us in the, in the Hanafi madhab, it's a, the, the fard is a quarter. According to Imam Shafi'i rahimahullah, it's tabi'id. So if you were to wipe one strand of hair, okay, that's mas'h done. The bare minimum in the Shafi'i madhab. Okay, and the other, the a'imma have different opinions. Why? Because they were, they had different understandings of the way they interpreted this verse. Now, if a person was to do the wudu in the, in the method of the Shafi'is, right? He was to wipe one hair, just one hair, like do the complete bare minimum. And then he was to pray according to the usul and the method of the Hanafis, his prayer would not be valid. Because his wudu is not valid. That's why you can't just say, hey, I'm gonna, today I'm gonna, I feel like doing the Shafi uh, wudu, uh, wudu today, right? And tomorrow I'm gonna do the Hanafi wudu, right? Because rulings are linear, they're connected. So that's why it's very, very important for us to understand. 
First of all, it creates tolerance. Right? In, in the subcontinent, when people are living, they're coming from Pakistan or they're coming from India, the majority of them were Hanafi. So there was no issue. When you come into a country like this where people have different, uh, they, they come from different madhahib or they come from different countries which would follow different madhahib, it's very important to understand at the very minimum the differences so that we can have, the toler have that tolerance. Somebody walks into this masjid and starts to pray and has his hands down beside, beside him. That's Sadal. And Sadal is the, the, the Mu'tamad opinion in the Maliki school. So he prays like this with his hands on his side. What are people going to say? They're going to turn around and say, oh, well, this, this person, now they're going to accuse him as a Shia. But that's a valid opinion, right? So in order for us to understand that there are going to be people who do different practices, and we shouldn't judge or write off a person's aqidah based upon different practices, I think it's important to understand that. And also the differences of opinion that exist with, uh, within the Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah, it's very, very important for us to stick to one madhab rather than following uh, different madhab. Subhanallah. Shaykh uh, Mona Nizam, one question for you. Shaykh, you carry on. Um, one question for you. Um, so for example, if somebody is a Hanafi and within the Hanafi school, there are differences of opinion. We have two extremes amongst our known scholars. One is that they will always adopt the most harshest and strictest opinion and enforce that onto other people. That's one extreme. The other extreme is those people who will always take the most lenient, even sometimes the marjuh opinion of a certain matter and promote and enforce that onto people. These are two extremes. What is the balance and how should the religions of the, uh, the, uh, the masail of the deen in this manner be propagated? So first and foremost, uh, for the ami, for the layman, his mufti is the imam of the masjid. So whatever the imam of the masjid says, that is the opinion that he will hold on to. And what we should understand is that these differences of opinion are in fact a mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Imam Malik rahimahullah ta'ala, uh, this is a narration mentioned by Khatib al-Baghdadi, that the Khalifa at that time, the Abbasi Khalifa, he wanted to send copies of the Mu'atta Imam Malik rahimahullah ta'ala to every city mm. so that everyone acts upon and abides by the Mu'atta of Imam Malik rahimahullah ta'ala. Imam Malik rahimahullah ta'ala replied, O Amir al-Mu'mineen, do not do this. Do not do this. We do not wish to impose our opinions on people. Islam has already reached there and people are abiding by whatever opinions they have already heard first. So this is the opinion of Imam Malik rahimahullah ta'ala who is not imposing his own opinion on others. Today we have people who want to impose their own stringent, only their own opinion upon every single person within the Ahl Sunnati wal Jama'ah. And anyone who disagrees with them is a sulakulli, is a deviant.